Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Uh, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 31. And uh, we're continuing this sermon series called Upside Down, and we're now in our second week of Missions Month. And... Uh, I heard a lot of people watch the Free Burma Rangers movie. It was good, right? Uh, really convicting. Uh, really flips your perspective upside down, you know? And, and, and you just sit there, and I, was, I remember sitting there, and people always ask, like, did you cry? Did you tear up? I'm like, uh, almost, almost, not quite. But it just makes you like, oh, that's totally different perspective and way to live. And there's something about it that makes you want to live differently. There's something about it that makes you want to have something that that person has or experience something that that person experiences. And I think sometimes when we think of this whole idea of perspective, because this week we're talking about upside-down perspective. Last week we talked about upside-down life and how when you really experience the gospel in a transformative way, it, it, it compels you to live differently. And so first to start to have that, your perspective has to shift and change. And I think oftentimes when we think about perspective, we just see it as like a slightly different way of looking at something. You know, like oftentimes when we're sitting and whether it's in our life groups or talking with a friend, you're like, oh yeah, I got some like good perspective today. And it's just like all this just very slight different way of looking at something. But most of us, I would say, don't really believe that our perspective needs to be flipped upside down, changed 180 degrees. I think most of us feel like, oh, I just, yeah, I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I just kind of slightly change it or adjust it. <clears throat> but I would say we all need a 180 degree transformation of our perspective if we are really to live out the mission that God has called us to. If we were to really, and, and the re- reason why is because the, the, oftentimes we don't see the situation that we're in. And many of us, we think that like our perspective is okay until something happens. And, uh, you know, we don't want things to happen, but uh, there's a a video I wanted us to watch that really kind of illustrates this idea of what does it mean to have a total shift or change in perspective from a situation that you just cannot control. It's not going to take just a slight adjustment of perspective or just a slight change, but has to be a completely upside down way of thinking about things. So I want to watch this video. It's, a, it's kind of a sharing of a person who has a form of macular degeneration. For those of you who uh, are like medical students, you know that's like an eye disease where you lose your sight. <clears throat> and so she, uh, she had sight when she was younger, but eventually over the years, she actually totally lost her sight and went blind. And I want us just to listen a little bit of how, even though she went through this, how her perspective was really flipped upside down and changed uh, in the end. So let's watch this video together. All right. I think, you know, just watching that video, just hearing her speak, and I, I think she actually communicates fairly well, it's quite eloquent. You wouldn't think that she went through some of the things that she went through, right? Like if, if you were to talk to someone who's completely lost their sight, and was really insecure and was afraid of being judged. Like, and then all of a sudden to be able to see her share in the way that she did with the perspective that she had, you're like, wow, something must have changed. Something must have been really different. And I, I love what she said at the end where she said it, it was like being led into the dark place and then finally being able to see the light, even though she can't see anymore. And I think from the video, you can't even tell, right? She comes off as this confident, self-assured woman who knows what's happened and through just, you know, I think for her, she puts her trust in her dog. Hopefully we're putting her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm wondering, like, for her to be able to find a perspective that 180 degrees changed everything about how she saw her macular degeneration, to allow her to live a joyful life, not a frustrated life, not an angry life. Like, how many of us, we've experienced that before? How many of us, we're still like trying to incrementally like get this little bit of perspective and this little bit of here compared to 
we really need to have something that completely changes the way that we see our life and our circumstances. Because if we don't, then we're going to be left with a really poor perspective that no one's going to want to follow Jesus. No one's going to want to buy into the faith that we buy into. But if we were to live with a different perspective and be able to have the same confidence that she has, then I think it would be very different. And so I wanted to talk today about what does it look like to actually have a completely flipped upside-down perspective. Not just an adjusted one, but a completely flipped upside-down perspective. And that's what Paul is going to talk about as we go through this passage. So hopefully you've talked, uh, turned to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 through 31. We're going to go through. Uh, Paul gives us three upside-down perspectives that go against everything that the world advocates for. And it's all these three perspectives that the world advocates for that really hinders us from living out the gospel, from living out just the hope and the joy that the Bible and the cross really talks about. So let's start with the first one. The first perspective that we have to have, this upside-down perspective, is that we can't have the best of both worlds. We cannot have the best of both worlds. Let's read in verse 17 to 18. Again, um, if you're just joining us for the first time, I encourage you to download the mobile app because it has the passage there. It has fill in the blank. And if you don't have a Bible with you, then just turn in to read with someone next to you. Let's read starting in verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we pick up here as Paul is um, talking about just what it means, what does the cross mean? What, what kind of new perspective we have? And, and when we think about like having the both, best of both worlds, um, usually what the world tells us is that you can't have it all. You can have both worlds and all the worlds and everything in between, right? Like think about what you're trying to do in life. You're trying to get a degree, or if you're working, you're trying to make it higher, trying to uh, have a great family life. You're trying to have great recreational life. You're trying to have fun. You have great friendships. All at the same time. All at once. And that's what the world continues to tell us. And then the world tells us, oh, if you discover this other great thing, just add it to your life. Right? This new workout plan. This new health benefit. This new uh, travel vacation location. Now they have uh, uh, flights from Hong Kong to Hong Kong. Like this great new invention that now you can, if you've always wanted to travel, you can travel for, I don't know, a couple hours and then land at the same airport that you started with, right? Like you can have it all. But Paul, he's saying the complete opposite. And in verse 17, what is, what is he saying? He's saying, I preach to you without eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of, of its power. He's doing that intentionally. Why is he saying this? Just for some context, um, Paul was addressing divisions in the church of Corinth. This is from the letters of 1 Corinthians, and it was the church of Corinth that he was really criticizing or addressing, rebuking, correcting issues that were happening in the church. And one of the main issues was this issue of division. Well, why were they divided? <clears throat> well, uh, Corinth was actually a city in ancient Greece that was actually very similar to Hong Kong. It was located... Uh, very close to the sea. It was a place of trade. A lot of wealth would go in and out. And <clears throat> because wealth went in and out, it was a very important city in, in Rome. And because of that status, it attracted a lot of very wealthy and reputable people. And during that time in the Greek world, like kind of celebrity status was, would be like how well you could speak. It was oration that was well known at the time. So the better you could speak, or the more versed you were, or the more wise you came off when you did these speeches, then the more disciples you would make, and the more money you would make because you could start a school and get people to pay you in order to, to listen to your teaching. And so Paul is coming against this culture that highly regards eloquent wisdom and very lofty speech by saying, no, I am not going to preach with eloquent wisdom. It's like, I was just trying to think of an example, but I don't know if any of you have seen on the minibuses those ads for like the Hong Kong tutors, 
like the superstar tutors, like this tutor has gotten 100,000 students like the DSC top score, right? And gotten to all these amazing universities, right? It's like kind of like that. Paul's saying, I'm not like that. <clears throat> like there are all these people who are recognized for their oration, but I'm not like that. I'm coming against that. I'm coming without this eloquent wisdom. So what is he actually trying to say then? What did he come in? So if we look in 17 and 18, He's saying these two things. He's saying, number one, the cross has no power if preached with eloquent wisdom. And then also, kind of as a mirror, he's saying the cross is the power of God if preached as folly or without eloquent wisdom, without this amazing, impressive rhetoric that the Greek, the people in the city of Corinth so desire. Now, I think for us, they might be like, Oh, I don't really understand. But for the Greeks at that time, it was like um, incredible. Whoa, that's, that's really radical. That's really different. That's like saying like you can go to Harvard if you have, you know, I don't know what the DSC score level is, but it's like bottom of the list on your DSC score, you could go to Harvard. It, it, it didn't make sense. He was saying the cross has no power if you're preached with eloquent wisdom, but the cross is the power of God if preached as folly or without eloquent wisdom. It's not compatible. Eloquent wisdom is not compatible with the cross. It's like Apple and Android users. They just don't mix, right? Trump and Biden supporters, they just don't mix. It's incompatible. Oof. (laughs) And I don't think what Paul is saying, he's saying literally that all eloquent speeches are bad. Right? Because we see in other passages in Scripture, Peter gave an incredible sermon on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people came to know Christ in that moment. Paul himself, when he writes these letters, these letters are actually very eloquent and very well written. But what he was saying is anytime a cultural thing takes the focus away from the cross, in this case it was that lofty, eloquent wisdom, that rhetoric, then that's going to be a problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5 to in the NIV And this is Paul telling them how he actually came to them. He said, And so it was me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, and then let's read it together in the yellow. It says, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So what Paul is saying is like, no, it's not. I did this intentionally, so you could not mix the two. So you cannot confuse the cross and the power of God with something that's very human, with something that people tend to gravitate toward as as some other humanly wisdom or power. It's got to be separate. There's no addition. You cannot add this wisdom to the cross. You cannot edit things to the cross, right? I know in our culture, we love to edit and manipulate and change things, right? Like our, this is like the age of deep fakes, the age of Photoshop, right? And, and praise God for our creative teams. Like they, they do a great job. Uh, with Photoshop and other different tools. But <laughs> the problem is uh, there, there can be a lot of crazy stuff, even professionally, that happens when you try to Photoshop. So I want to show a couple of photos here. I want to see if you can spot out the problems with the Photoshop images. So uh, a little bit of participation, but let's go and see uh, some of the photos. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if you can see so up close the details, but see if you can notice what the issue is with this photo. If you see it, just yell it out. Yeah, there's an extra hand, right, on that guy. He's got his hand around her, and his hand is also down here below next to her, okay? All right, let's see the next one. That, that's, that was a real ad, by the way, that was in print. What is this? What's wrong with this one? <clears throat> yeah, there's no face. There's no face. It's a little smiley face. I didn't put those drawings in, by the way. These were found there. All right, this was a, some kind of photo shoot that somehow got published. Okay, what's the next one? What's wrong with this one? 
You see the hand, right? He's holding on to someone else's hand. And you can notice it, this made it into a publication. This guy who's in some kind of, I'm guessing like uh, some kind of promotional ad is holding on to someone else's hand, but that hand is missing. All right, let's see what else. This is a Netflix, Netflix promotion for The Babysitter. I don't know if anyone watched it. This one's a little bit harder. Can anyone see it? Yell it out if you can see it. Yeah, this is the same hand. There's two right hands. If you notice where the thumb is on the hand, oh, yeah. There's two right hands in the photo. I think there's a couple more. I don't know if you uh, recognize this is Emma Watson, right? What happened to her? She's missing a leg. <laughs> don't know where their leg went, right? It disappeared somehow. Is there one more, I think? I think this is the last one. <laughs> I don't know what, uh, this is a Vans commercial. I think it's from one of the, the Nordic countries. Um, but yes, I don't know where they, why they, if there's a perfectly normally dressed guy, why they decided to take off his arm, add a separate one with an extra hand attached to his arm, right? <clears throat> yeah, now you see it, okay, all right. So I think at first glance, it doesn't seem like anything is wrong, but when we make a lot of extra edits and additions to our life and, our, and, and these images, it turns out really wrong or really weird. And you're like, that's not right. And, and keep in mind, these are professional editors that make these kind of mistakes. And it's incredible the amount that we manipulate. And I, I know you probably have seen other photos. I think one of the big, scan or not scandals, but the trending things on the internet is how much they edit like model photos and really make like women, but not only women, also men look totally different than what they are and what they actually are. And I think this is just a human nature that we are always trying to edit, we're always trying to add, we're always trying to change something to go on top of what we already have. Somehow because we think that we're going to make it better, but it actually turns out worse. And that's the problem is, is sometimes we like to Photoshop our faith. Sometimes we like to Photoshop the very things that we believe about Jesus Christ by adding things on top, things that really never should have been there to begin with. Because we want the best of both worlds. Because we constantly think, we're, we're constantly bombarded with these messages, the, thing, the message that if you have more, then it's going to be better. If we really see this in a cultural context, uh, this is where we always say the phrase like, I want Jesus and blank. And you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you want with Jesus and, because it sounds really good, like I want Jesus, but as soon as you add something else to it, then it becomes really problematic. Let me give us some examples. Like, I want Jesus and works, like results. Like, there's nothing wrong with results or works in and of itself, right? We, we like to see people accept Christ. We like to see people excel in their workplace. We love to see people really making impact and influence for Jesus Christ. But the problem becomes where when we let that be an addition on top of what we believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient for, right? So for so many of us, we get into this trap of doing more things, thinking that if I have this, then it's going to somehow make my relationship with Jesus Christ so much better, or I'm going to be that much more accepted by Jesus Christ, right? Like so many of us think that, oh, if I just read my Bible this much more, I send out my soap this much more, if I do more church stuff, then, yeah, my, but, but how many of us, we've tried that, we've been there, and we're left feeling empty and disappointed? How many of us, we think that, oh, if I only have that job or that salary or that position, Jesus, if I get that, you and that, man, life would be great. But how many of you have gotten that job? And then you meet the boss, and then you meet the project that you're in, you're like, oh, MG, that's not what I was looking for. And you hop from job to job to job to job, and you're never, never satisfied. How many of us, I want Jesus and my GPA. 
I, I don't know, some of you don't know, uh, recently I started seminary in the last uh, couple months, and it's been a really interesting uh, experience. I am now a student again, and when I introduce myself in the life group, because I'm still part of an undergrad life group, I'm like, hey, my name is Bo, my first year here, right? And they're like, huh? Everyone's like, stop that. Um, <laughs> but as I started getting in school, my first semester, I didn't have any exams. But this semester, I'm taking two classes. I have exams. I have midterm exams and final exams. So I'm sharing prayer requests about, I have an exam. Please pray for me. And they're like, what? Like, what's wrong with you? But I realized, like, the cultural things that I thought I had worked through in undergrad, they're still with me. The things I try to add on to Jesus, they're still with me. Like, I realized, like, right before I'm about to take an exam, I still feel that tension. Like, oh, oh, no. Like, I feel it. And then after I take the exam, um, like, before I get the grades back, before they're released, like, I get a little notification, your grade has been released. Like, there's that tension. Like, the heart skips a beat. Like, OMG. Like, what am I going to get? Like, am I going to get an A or a B or... You know, because Asians, only A and B are acceptable, right? <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't know. I, I, in that moment, I was talking with one of my advisors um, in the seminary, and I, I was wrestling through that, and then something that that person said, because I was taking a, she was saying that this professor I was taking this class with had told her and had exhorted previous students, and, and this is a quote from that professor. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what Pastor says is saying. He said, for many of you, it can be a sin to get an A in that class. I was like, oh. <laughs> Some of you are like, huh? How is that a sin? And I was thinking, I was like, what? Like, and I'm like, I'm studying for Jesus, you know? Like, if I get an A, this should be better. It should be better for, you know, our church and all this kind of stuff. Like, it could, how is it a sin to get an A? Well, I realized what I was really trying to do and what my heart really showed about me in that moment was I was so idle, I was so focused, and I was thinking somehow that my grade or my GPA is going to define me. That's going to be what's going to support me and help me more than what Jesus Christ has done in my life itself. And I want to challenge some of us students, especially in this age of pandemic where not, you have nothing better to do, so you might as well study all the time, right? Like some of us were so consumed with our grades and with our GPA, and we don't realize that GPA has become something that we add on top of Jesus. And we, we get really spiritual about it, right? We're like, oh, I'm, I'm a student. God's called me to be a student. And so therefore, I got to do well in my studies. Without realizing, thinking, oh, actually, is this the way that I best might honor God in everything that I do? Because I had to confess to myself, like, yeah, I could study, like, this many more hours and try to get an A in that class. And I knew I had more time. I could do that or I could work on my sermon. I could do that or I could love people and meet up with others. I could do that or I could reach out to my colleagues. I could do that or I could study while I'm working instead of being faithful to my work. And there's so many things that I realized that was an idol in my heart, in my life. And I'm wondering how many of us, we, we, we masquerade or we pretend like we're really holy by saying, oh, my studies are really for Jesus when it's really for ourselves. And it's not just for students. For working adults, there's so many things that we can apply this to, right? For it's the promotion that we get, the project that we're working on, the thing that our boss wants us to do, families, right? This is uh, so much the case with our kids and where we want our kids to be and where they need to get to, right? Like all the schools and all the interviews that they have to go through. I think one really good test, a good heart check to find out if we're adding something to Jesus is to ask yourself this question, is if, I, if I don't have this thing, whatever you say, I want Jesus and, if I don't have this thing, will Jesus be enough for me? Will Jesus still be enough for me? Ask ourselves that question. And I'm wondering if that's the reason why we're not experiencing God in our lives. I'm wondering if that's the reason why we're struggling and we feel far from God. is because the cross and the gospel is emptied of its power. When we say Jesus and this, Jesus and my grades, Jesus and my family, Jesus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it should be Jesus and only Jesus. John Piper in um, this book, Don't Waste Your Life, he said, 
Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and deepest comfort and every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. Everything is wasted. Everything else that you get is wasted if you do not only say Jesus Christ is the only wisdom, the only power, the only boast that I have in this world. If you rely on anything, like you're trying to add anything else to Christ, then your perspective is going to lead you down that dark path. So that, that's the first perspective. Let's move on to the second one. It's, the first one was that we can't have the best of both worlds. Let's read now verses 19 to 25. 19 to 25 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, not, not only can we not have the best of both worlds, but we have to choose the best, not just what's better. We have to choose the best, not just what's better. So, what the world will oftentimes say is, your life can be better if you get better. If you just choose everything that's better, then you can get everything that you want. And in verse 19, Paul is talking about worldly wisdom. And, and when we think about what is wisdom supposed to do anyway, it's supposed to teach us how to live. It's supposed to teach us how to find joy, satisfaction. So the world will say you find joy, satisfaction, happiness, significance by getting more stuff, doing better in the things that you're doing already. But I think Paul is saying something completely different. In fact, in 19 and 20s, he's saying, I'm going to destroy this wisdom. He's saying, I'm going to replace it. And then he asks these rhetorical questions in verse 20, saying, who is the wise? Who is the scribe? These are all reputable things. It's like saying, who is the doctor? Who is the lawyer? Who is the financial analyst? Like, those are great, but that's not the wisdom of God. And that's where Paul then, in verses 22 to 25, he starts to give some examples. He starts to give examples of Jews and Greeks, and that will help us to see how just getting something better is not really going to find help us to find what is ultimately best. Um, when we look at verses 22 to 25, it, it looks like, oh, there's so much going on here. It's about folly and wisdom and power. You're talking about Jews and Greeks, and sometimes it's hard to make sense of it. And so uh, I, I think sometimes it's helpful to just put things in a visual way so that we can see what it's actually going to talk about. So I think I have this table up here on what it means to choose the best in these. I'm going to go verse by verse. And then on the left side in the content, verse 22 is about what they want. So we're going to compare Jews and Greeks. Verse 23 is about how they view the cross. And then verse 25 is how they view Christianity's God. And we'll get back to verse 24 in a moment. But if you look in verse 22, if anyone wants to shout it out, like, what do the Jews want in verse 22? What are they looking for? Signs, wonders, miracles, right? They were looking for these miraculous signs, wonders, and miracles. Well, if we look at verse 23, how did they view the cross? What's that phrase? A stumbling block, right? It's a stumbling block, and a stumbling block in those times is something that led one into error or into sin or into spiritual downfall, and which... How can we conclude in verse 25, how do they view Christianity's God? Well, they view Christianity's God as weakness. They saw it as weakness. Well, let's look at the Greeks. What did the Greeks want? Wisdom, right? Wisdom in that time, human wisdom is philosophy. Back to the earlier thing I talked about, orders, like people who are very wise in their rhetoric and the way that they spoke. Verse 23, how did they view the cross? Folly, right? Or foolishness, lacking rhetoric. They, they felt like it was dumb. It didn't make any kind of sense. 
And then how do they view Christianity as God? They viewed it as foolishness. So for Jews, they're expecting all these impressive miracles, signs. Greeks, they're looking for like philosophy, these insights, these like pithy truths. And the cross is the opposite of everything they expected. The cross is not what they were expected. But what were they expecting? Well, if we look at this, they were expecting something better than what they had already. Just a little bit better. Because what did the Jews have? They already had prophets. They already had these, these teachings. They already had this promise of the Messiah. They were just looking for something a little bit better. What were the Greeks looking for? Something a little bit better. Like, we have these orders already. We already have these people who are great at speech. It has to be a little bit better than that. And because they were expecting these better things, they believed that if we have this better stuff, then we're going to have a better life, better spirituality, better significance, better joy. Essentially, if I can have these better things, then that's what's going to save my life. And many of us, we buy into this perspective. Many of us, we think about, if I can get this, then I'm going to be able to live a better life. I mean, it's, it's similar to what we talked in the, in the last point, but we oftentimes think, oh, if I can get better grades, then my life is going to be better. If I can get a better job or internship, then my life is going to be better. If, I'm, if I can get a better significant other in every way of the word, right, better looking, <laughs> better intelligence, better salary, right, then it's going to be better. Or if I can do better in my Bible reading, then oh, yeah, my life is going to be better. Or how about this one? If I had a better life group. Oh. Some of us, we are like really not happy with our life group. Or we have a lot of complaints about our life group. Like, oh, if only my life group was better, then, man, my life would be so much better. But how many of us, we know that some of the hardest life groups, for those of you who have been part of life group for more than a year, some of the harder, quote-unquote, harder life groups are the ones that make you into Christ the most. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and this is the problem. Is we try to find our salvation in many of these things. We, we compare, and we're constantly looking for all these other things that somehow are going to, like, make our, our lives better, but these are the things that are not really going to save. What does Paul say the things that are really going to save? What is the cross really in verse 24? I think it fills in the rest of the table. It says, it is the power of God for salvation. That's what the Jews were looking for, but that's what the cross was. On the Greek side, the, the, the cross really is the wisdom of God for salvation. And verse 25, how Paul views Christianity as God, which is different than how the Jews and Greeks viewed Christianity as God. He said it's stronger than men and it's wiser than men. So what is the cross? It's not just better, but it's the only thing that can actually fix or address your sin problem, your salvation problem. It's the only thing. Think about it. Can your grades save you? Can your work, your job save you from sin? from joylessness, from lack of hope, from relational conflict? Can your family save you? Can your, even your life group, your hard life group, your, or, or this ideal life group, can that save you? No. It's the cross and only the cross that can save any of us from our sin from our brokenness, from our depravity, from every condition that hinders us from experiencing the love, the joy, and the peace that God wants us to experience, that he has given to us through the cross. Thomas Akempis in The Inner Life, he says, in the cross is salvation. In the cross is life. In the cross is protection against our enemies. In the cross is infusion of heavenly sweetness. In the cross is strength of the mind. In the cross is joy of the spirit. In the cross is excellence of virtue. In the cross is perfection of holiness. There's no salvation of soul nor hope of eternal life save in the cross. 
When was the last time you went to the cross? When was the last time you put your full hope, your full trust in the cross? And the cross alone. And so many of us, we try to medicate our sin or manage our sin by going to these other things, thinking that somehow they're going to save us, but they leave us emptier and emptier. And the solution to your sin is not more good things, but it is the cross of Christ. That is the only thing that can wipe away your sin. That is the only thing that can give you life, protection, infusion of heavenly sweetness, strength, joy of spirit, excellence of virtue, perfection of holiness. There's no salvation apart from the cross. If you try to find that in anything outside of the cross, you're going to be left wanting. And others, they're going to see that. We're thinking about like, oh God, my life is not what it should be for Missions Month. No one looks at my life and says, oh, I want that. Well, I'm wondering if it's because you're holding on to the very same things that the world is holding on to. And you're not experiencing any of this power because you are not going to the cross. The cross is not significant or meaningful in your life. Isaiah 53, verse 2 to 6. It's talking about Jesus. This is a prophetic word from Isaiah. He says, and then read it together in the yellow. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him because we value beauty or majesty. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, right? Everything else that we, we exalt or look at in this world he was despised, rejected by, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is Jesus. Nothing about him is what the world values. In fact, if the world would evaluate Jesus, they would say, thumbs down. You're fired. The world would not elect him. But if you can find, listen to this, if you can find a better way to save yourself, then go find that. Go do that. Come back to me and let me know what that is. But until you find that, you better put your whole life under the cross, run to the cross. See the blood that was shed, the pain, the torture that he went through, the forgiveness that he gave so that we could have life with Christ. That's the only way. Can't just get what's better in this world. You have to choose what's best. And oftentimes what's best doesn't really look like that great in the, the world's eyes. Let's look at the last point. We can't have the best of both worlds. We've got to choose the best, not just the better. The third point is consider how you are the best example. Consider how you are the best example. I think if we, again, look at the world's perspective, the world will tell us you have to be put together to be a good example. Like you have to be top of your class, you gotta be like this incredible you know, reputation in order to be a good example. And there's some truth to that because you can earn respect by how well you are. But if we read this passage and we look at what Paul is saying and we ask the question, how are we the best example of the cross today? Then we'll see a very different picture of what it means to be the best example of Christ. And I'm just going to go through three kind of statements, verse 26, verse 27, 28, and then verse 29 through 31 on this. And so um, verse 26, let's read it. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And so if I were to sum up what Paul is saying, he's saying, you're not that great. So turn to your neighbor say, you're not that great.
All right. Some of you are uh, you're in, you're enjoying you're enjoying saying that way too much. You're like you've been wanting to say that the whole day. Okay? He says, "Consider your calling." In verse 26 in the NIV, that phrase is translated as Think of what you were when you were called. So he's saying, think back to who you used to be when you were first called by God, when you were first saved by God. For the Corinthian church, actually, they were, they were really proud. They thought, oh, I'm, we're so great. We have all these spiritual gifts. But Paul is saying, look back. Look back to who you were. So just think for a moment, who were you in high school? The awkward, antisocial, insecure, and someone's like, oh, I'm still like that. <laughs> And he's saying that, why? Because this is who you were. And it's okay, admit it. There's power in admitting and recognizing that you're not that great. It's the proud and ins... (laughs) Amen. It's the proud and insecure people who are the, the worst examples of Jesus Christ. Like, how many of you have been inspired by someone who's like really insecure? Anyone? No, right? None of us. Like, no, none of us are like, oh, I just can't wait to be that person. <laughs> but if you admit it and you own it, you own your weaknesses, you, wo- you own how not great you are, then you start to build some kind of confidence that people will say, at least I can respect that. Right? Like for me, I was all through my undergrad, I was called emo bo. <laughs> okay? I was called emo bo. And that was because, like, after life, I think I've shared this many times, but I would be the guy during refreshments, I would take the guitar, go into a separate room, and play by myself and sing to myself. You know, I was like really anti social. I'd be like, why are you so emo, man? And then somewhere along the way, after I accepted Christ, I think in my second or third year, I began to own it. I'm like, yeah, I'm emo Bo. <laughs> and then. And then people were like confused. That doesn't sound like a very emo thing to say, you know? I began to own it. There's something about like accepting it, being okay with it, saying, okay, God, there's certain things that you created me that I have to overcome my insecurities, but I am who I am. I am who you created me as. And I got to own that. And, and that, you know, in a paradoxical way, that began to get, give me confidence. That began to help me not to be as emo as I used to be. Right? And I think so many of us, we're so concerned with what people think of us, and we're so concerned with trying to be great that it leaves us so insecure that we're actually the opposite of what Christ wants us to be. So you're not that great. The second one, let's read verses 27 to 28. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So God, uh, sorry, you're not that great. And the second phrase is, but God chose you to show that God is greater. But God chose you to show that God is greater. It says here, I love, verse 27, we, I think we need more like but God testimonies, right? You're not the great, but God. He chose us. He chose us to do what? To shame the wise and to shame the strong. And verse 28 is a repetition of that. What does it really mean to shame the wise or shame the strong? In the Amplified uh, Bible, those phrases are in the parentheses. It says, reveal ignorance or reveal frailty. Reveal ignorance or reveal frailty. So what it's really saying, the way that you shame the wise or you shame the strong is you reveal some assumption that that message of strength or wisdom uh, is, is based on and you show how it's actually not true. How do you actually do that? Well, you actually do that by being weak. You do that by being vulnerable. You own that weakness. How does that actually work? Well, if someone who's really strong comes off and says, I'm really strong and I'm really great. Like how many of us we know that no one is perfect in life? No one has everything set up for them. Everyone struggles with something. And for someone to say that I'm strong and I'm perfect and I have all of this, when you come and you start sharing something very vulnerably like, oh, I'm not that strong, I'm not that great, and you, you share your weaknesses, and you share it in a very humble way, in an honest way, and you share, but, you know, still even through my weaknesses, things were able to work out and happen. What does it do? 
it totally discredits the person who says, I've done all these things by my strength. Why? Because everyone knows that no one is perfect. You ask anyone out in the world, everyone knows that they're not perfect. And so as soon as you share vulnerably, then you begin to connect with people. People begin to see, wow, that person's actually speaking some truth. You're revealing some ignorance in that person's position of strength. That's how God is going to use you to shame the strong. That's how God is going to use you to shame the vulnerable. Like, when is the last time you shared honestly and vulnerably with your life group? When's the last time you opened up? When's the last time you said, I'm a fool for Christ? I'm willing to be foolish and expose my weaknesses, even though it's hard and even though it's, it's going to make me look bad, but because I know that God has healed me, he's restored me, he's loved me, that I can share this because everyone knows that this is true. And it's only when they see this is true that they're going to stop buying into that lie that you have to be strong and wise on your own terms. I want to challenge us to really share vulnerably and, and be honest with one another. And just, just one small comment is, even when we preach, I think something that people have shared with me are like, Pastor Bob, I'm so thankful, or I'm, I've been really impacted every time you share dumb stories about yourself, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like times that you fail, you know, times that you, you mess up, conflicts you have with Erica, like when you forget to leave the toilet seat down, like stuff like that. I'm like, why is it that I always have to share dumb stuff about myself for people to be inspired? <laughs> because it points to not the person, it points to God right? It gives people a greater hope. It gives people a greater sense of, wow, there's something, uh, because I'm not that great. Then if, if that person's not that great and they can experience God, then there's hope for me too. And I'm wondering if this missions month, we will think that way to realize, you know what? We're not going to win people by showing off how great we are. We're not going to win people by somehow like trying to up our resume so that we can be like, wow, look at me and how awesome I, because you're just going to discourage other people. But to be able to in your relationships that you're building with others, to be able to share honestly the things that you're going through, but yet how God has worked through your life to allow you to still have the hope and the joy that you have. I think that would be powerful for us to see testimonies like that. Let's finish off with the last point, uh, verses 29 to 31. It says, uh, continuing on with what Paul is saying, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think this whole sermon prep, I was so frustrated because, like, Paul, get to the point. Why, why did you make the cross foolishness? Why did you make weaknesses strength? Why did you flip everything upside down? Why do we as Christians have to live this completely paradoxical life where nothing makes sense, we have to go against the world, and, and live with a totally different upside-down perspective. Finally, Paul gives the answer here in these verses. He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the reason why. And that third phrase, we talked about, you're not that great, but God chose you to show that God is greater, so boast in the Lord. So boast in the Lord. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? What does it mean for us to somehow, does that mean, Pastor Bill, does that mean like, I just got to fail in everything? Like, I, I look at my exam like, oh, I know this is right, but I choose the wrong one, <laughs> right? Or like, I know this is the right financial number for my project, but I just change the number so that it's wrong and that I lose money for my company. Like, look, I am weak. <laughs> Promote me. This is God's power. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. He's saying, you're already, dumb. you're already not that great, so don't do more dumb stuff, right? <laughs> you, we're already not great. We're already not wise in the world. We're already not like these amazing people. And so they're already going to look at us as dumb. Like, why do you spend so much time in church? Why do you invest? You could be doing all these things to advance your career. You could be doing all this extra time studying so you can get a better grade. So why do you do these things? So I would advocate, and this is, a consistent theme that Paul has been talking about through the whole time is that the way that you boast is when you recognize that you have these weaknesses, that you 
demonstrate God's power through love. You demonstrate God's power through love. And when we think about the Corinthians, they were so proud. And the, the original issue that the Corinthians had was division. And when people are divided, what does that mean? It means they're not loving one another. And so Paul's solution, and he, he, he rebukes the Corinthians for putting their trust in all these spiritual gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we're not going to read it, but you know what that chapter is about. It's about love. He's saying the greatest of these things is love. If, if I have all these things but not love, what am I? Nothing. And so if you can love when it doesn't make sense, if you can love when you're trampled on, if you can love when you're behind, if you can love when it costs you everything, when it doesn't make sense for you to love, I'm wondering how much people will recognize there's something different about you. And when people ask you what's so different about you, what are you going to say? Man, that love is from God. That love is from God because he could have boasted. He could have come with his angels. He could have cast every one of us into hell. He could have condemned every single one of us for our sin. Every single disobedience, every single sin that you committed this week or omitted, you should not be here. Think about all the people in the, around the world who died from COVID. That could have been us. That person that got you know, in an accident, suffered a stroke. That could have been us. And he had every reason to condemn us. But what did he do? He died for us. He exercised love. He boasted in the Father by loving people when no, none of us deserve to be loved in any meaningful way. That's why the cross is the only thing that you can rely on, the only thing that you can go to, the only thing that you can have any semblance of hope in. And if you think somehow that you're going to fix your life Set up your life by yourself, you're sadly mistaken. God should have wiped us out, but he humbled himself. He went to the cross. He suffered death, punishment, torture as a demonstration of love. That's what he boasted in so that we could have life, so that others can have life. That's what motivates us to reach out. That's what motivates us. That's what stirs us up to reach out to as many people as we possibly can. We don't, know, we don't do missions just because we have nothing better to do. We do missions month because there's so many people just like us who have no hope just like we used to not have hope. Who are condemned by our sin just like we used to not be just like we used to be condemned by our sin. Who if we were only to share the good news of Christ and the cross and his resurrection they could also have hope. And I want to challenge us today. Will we love people well? Will we submit ourselves? Will we be willing to lose, to not hold on to our selfish, whatever we want for our life, adding things onto our life or just trying to get things better in our life so that someone else can experience the love that we have so undeserved? And this is the amazing thing, is that we don't have to do much more than that to reach out to people. Some of us, we think, oh, I'm, I'm not trained. I, I, I'm not comfortable. I can't do all this good stuff. I'm not eloquent in speech, and I don't know the apologetics to share with these people. You missed the point. If you have love, if you love people to the end, like Christ did, that's the message that's going to blow people away and help them to realize there's something so much greater about this God. John 13, 34 to 35, I'll just close out with this. It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I hope that as we recognize Christ's love for us on the cross, 
It compels us to love one another and to love others, even our enemies around us. And when the world sees that kind of love, then they will know. We can't force them, but they will know that we are Christ's disciples, that we serve Jesus Christ, who is a living God, who died for us, rose again from the grave to give us eternal life and to restore the whole world for himself. And so let's flip those perspectives. We can't have the best of both worlds. We've got to choose what's best, not just what's better, to consider how we are the best example. And I want to leave us with the one thing, kind of a challenge or just like uh, an endy thought, which is that the cross is either the most foolish act or the greatest foundation to build your life upon. You have to choose. I cannot choose for you. Your leaders cannot choose for you. It is a decision that you have to make every single day. You can choose your perspective, and your perspective will reveal what kind of philosophy that you're following, if it's the cross or if it's something else. And it will reveal whether or not you're able to genuinely receive God's love and love others in return. So I want to give us just a couple next steps. I'll just keep it simple today. Uh, the first thing is just repent of your worldly perspective and turn to the cross. I don't know, many of us, uh, I think we've just been running on empty, running on fumes. You know, when, I don't know if any of you have driven on an empty gas tank, but um, it, it's just the sense of just trying to do more things without any energy, without any motivation, without any kind of joy. I'm like, when's the last time you spent time with God just we're desperate for him. We're crying out, repenting of your sins, recognizing just how far I've fallen from him. And all of a sudden, we're like shifting into this mission. You're like, of course you're not motivated. Of course you're not on board. Of course you're, you're like, I, I don't see any heart in me to want to love other people. Why? It's because your perspective is off. You've bought into these worldly perspectives. So I want to challenge us. Repent. Go back to God. Turn around. Say, God, I've been following all these things. I want to follow you instead. And the second thing and last thing is recommit to loving people as Christ has loved you. Let's be a church that loves well. Let's not be a church that ones up on Let's not be a church that holds our world and tries to build our own world up for the sake of ourselves because we're afraid of losing things that the world is going to give us. Let's love well. Let's love unashamedly. Let's love as Christ has loved us. I believe as we love others, then that's the witness and that all of our outreach is people are going to see something different about us. When we go out and serve the city, when we go out and, and serve the campuses and your life stages and your colleagues, your family members, it's going to be really just transformative. So let's do those things together. Can we stand and we'll close out with some worship? Maybe just for a couple moments, what we can do is just reflect a little bit, just on your own. If you if you just need some a moment to process, just to reflect and just to pray and say, God, like where has my perspective gone? Like where where are the things that I'm valuing? Are are they worldly things that you've turned upside down, or is it really Christ? Have I added things? to you or am I just trying to pursue the better thing that the world promotes let's just start that way let's just reflect and just identify and then as soon as you identify you realize oh god yeah I've been been putting all of my value and, and my worth and my my job security or my financial situation or I put it into my grades and my studying then I want to encourage you just invite you to repent Confess. Come to God. Come to his cross. There's forgiveness. There's love. There's hope. There's nothing like that in this world. And I believe he's going to speak to us. And he's going to meet us in this place, in this sanctuary, in this room. So can we just do that? Can we just, so just a couple moments, not too long. 
let's just reflect a little bit and process and begin to repent to come before him in response. So let's just do that for a little bit. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.